Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Network Collective. In this episode, we are going to be challenging some of the sacred and tightly held beliefs of the networking community. So joining us today, we have uh, two um, very snazzy guests. This is a this is a this is a great episode. Um, we've got well, we got yeah some some style choices there. So so joining us um, um, first, uh, Ethan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Ethan Banks. I spent 20 years uh, building data centers in some capacity or another. Uh, went through a bunch of certifications, which is one of those sacred cows we're going to talk about today. Uh, and I was a CCIE at one point in time. I am no longer officially no longer, and we can talk about that, Jordan. Oh, and, fun, uh, fun. You might know me currently as the host of uh, one of the several Packet Pushers podcasts, which you can find at PacketPushers.net. Awesome. Uh, and our second guest today is Mike Bashong. Mike, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Mike Wushong. Uh, I work at Juniper Networks. I'm on the vendor side. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Um, been working at uh, networking companies for a while. I was head of marketing at Plexi. If you followed the Plexi blog, that was me. I uh, ran data center and uh, software at Brocade. Came back to Juniper so I could join podcasts just like this. That was the whole reason why you went to Juniper? That was the entire reason, was so that I could... <laughs> Wow. I don't know. I think maybe we should rethink that. Uh, we don't get those kind of ratings. Well, you can't beat the money in podcasts. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so Ethan, man, Ethan gave us the perfect segue into the first topic here, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start off with certifications, right? So, certifications are dying, right, Ethan? That's that's what's happening in this world, right? Certifications are just dead. <laughs> they're not worth anything anymore. Completely irrelevant. Just not worth it. The paper they're printed on. So uh, I was interviewed for a network career, networkcareer.net, and uh, that question came up. And my answer is that not that the certifications have lost value, but they've lost respect uh, is the way I would put it. So value, can you still get value uh, studying for a certification? Absolutely, because if you dig in deep with the program that uh, the vendor has designed for you in that certification, you will learn lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. It's going to force you to learn even more stuff than you normally would, because if you're like me, you like learn the stuff you really need to learn for your job, maybe, or to solve a problem and don't go after the other stuff. The certification makes you learn the other stuff, too. So there's tons of value there. Uh, but the respect has gone away because the cheating is so rife in the industry and so a lot of people are just so fed up with it that they're kind of given up on the program, I think, is the way that I would compartmentalize it. So my position is uh, if your goal is to learn something, you're trying to improve yourself as an engineer, then yes, certifications have value. Um, but but it's, it's a two-edged sword, though, because uh, uh, on the other hand, if you do that, you're going to learn a lot of vendor-specific stuff. And so there's... Um, a potential downside there, depending on how you're trying to position yourself uh, as an engineer. Yeah, I sure. can take a vendor side of this too. I just I, everything you say, Ethan, I agree with. Um, if you look at where the technology is going, though, um, if we really move towards intent-based, if we move towards abstraction, if we move to things that sort of separate you from the CLI and the syntax, it's hard to see the certifications existing in the way they do now. Um, so much of certification is, you know, do you know the right? way to express behavior in vendor-specific ways. Um, if we move to this heterogeneous multi-vendor environment, I, I just I don't see the value holding up the way it has over the last 20 years. It, it, it means the cert becomes something different, right? 
you still need to know network fundamentals. You can, you can intent all day long and talk about the things you'd like to build, and then when it doesn't work and you've got to troubleshoot it, or you're not asking the, for the right question, you're not asking the right questions because you don't understand the result you're going to end up with because of the way you express the intent, because you don't know what the heck you're talking about, you know, if you get my point. You're still going to need training. You're still going to need you know, deep knowledge of networking, I think. That doesn't go away just because we've extra abstracted things away. It just means certain specifics that you mentioned, Mike, like the CLI stuff. Yeah, who wants to sit around at a, com at a command line and you know, punch in stanzas to make the network do something? And a lot of us. people. A lot of people, believe it or not. <laughs> there, there has been a history there, right, of people who have found their value. They're, they're struggling uh, to to know what the new world looks like without without a CLI. But I, I don't know, man. Like, I look at certifications, and maybe maybe my path was different. Uh, but I when I look at them, I don't, I don't look at them that way. Like, I don't see them as, like, CLI-specific. While, sure, that's a component of it, man, I learned so much going through, you know, Cisco certification process uh, all the way through expert in the way, the fundamental way things worked. And that stuff is going to carry on regardless of whether I'm doing it on Cisco or HP or Juniper or name your brand here, white box. It doesn't matter, right? OSPF is OSPF and link state is link state and distance vector is distance vector and all those things matter. Uh, and, and so I, I really, I, I kind of take exception with this whole idea that certifications are dead. I think one of the problems is that people who go through certifications kind of anticipate that they're going to, they're going to, they're going to match what we're looking at as we're looking forward. But that's not what certifications do. Certifications validate skills on things that are deployed today. So while, you know, yes, SDN is coming down and we're talking about it a lot, we don't have a really great SDN certification. Well, you know, that's because if we asked what SDN was, we'd probably get a better answer today than we would a couple of years ago. But it's still one of those things that we're figuring out what it is. And so certifications, like, certifications are very bad predictors, right? They're very bad at looking forward and, and giving some sort of validation of some future skill. But they're great at validating things that are out there today. And there's still is an awful lot of equipment from a lot of vendors that need expert level skills that that certification is worth it. it. And I think you're hitting on exactly what a lot of people are hoping to get out of certification. Certainly what I was looking for earlier in my career. That was the way for me to climb the job ladder. I started out with CCNA way back in the day and got CCNP, CCSP, and eventually CCIE. Those were all stepping stones for me to have more responsibility in my job because I learned more. Proved it. Here's the certification that says I did it, et cetera. Uh, you really think that's still true now, though? That that's still the you know you can still climb that ladder because I don't I don't really think it works that way now. I do. I still think it does. Now, uh, maybe not in the heart of Silicon Valley. Maybe not if you're in a really progressive DevOps shop in like the middle of Manhattan. But by and large, I really do. Um, I completely agree with what you guys are saying. But I also agree with what Jordan's saying here. When it comes down to it, an HR department, they're going to have buzzwords and nonsense. I get that. But when I'm talking to an IT manager, uh, probably a hiring manager, and then going through the interview process, which I did just a, about a year ago, they asked me some technical questions about, okay, what port is SMT? How would you configure, uh, you know, whatever on on, a, on an ASA, and uh, and I was able to answer those things partly because of experience, which is why I I would still argue that experience and and hands-on training, if you want to call it that, or, or on-the-job training, is still uh, tr it still trumps uh, certification process. Nevertheless, uh, I got deep into the weeds because of the certification process, just like Jordan said, and so that really bolstered my career, and it does today. Now. 
again, I don't work in the heart of Silicon Valley. I don't work uh, at, a, at a really cool startup in Boston or something. Um, and I don't think most people do. Now, does that negate the, the fact that that's where we're going? Not necessarily, but it also doesn't negate the value of a certification today. Now, I get that whole argument about it um, being less value because there's a, did this person cheat component and, and, and dumps and things like that, right? Um, but that's what the interview process is for. So I don't, I'm not looking at this as, is the certification irrelevant? Is the certification dead? But is the process of going through vendor training, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room is Cisco training, right? Um, sorry, Mike. Uh, you go through you go through that, and you learn an incredible amount of knowledge, regardless of, of a vendor. Now you said OSPF. Now I could sit there and learn Cisco ICE. You know, I get that. That's professional development towards something that's very vendor specific. But by and large, that's not the case. So I can I can pivot and move in things, uh, and build my career on that. So the other thing that I've seen here is I think that a lot of people look at certifications like it's a zero sum game. Either you're all in and certifications oh, is the only only point. thing you're doing or or you're not doing certifications at all. And that leaves you free to study other things. The best engineers I know have done both. Right. They, they've done the certification thing, which allows you to have that structured study plan. And then they're naturally curious. They want to know how the other things work as well. And so I don't I don't think it's a zero sum thing. I think the idea is. You know, there, there is a set of networking fundamentals that have been proven out for the past 20 some odd years that expert level certifications have proven very well to, to validate skills on. Well, there's another point here in that certifications are going to give you a roadmap of what to study. If you're starting from ground zero, how the heck do you even know where to start? Yeah. So I'm starting to get into yep. cloud stuff. Okay. If I'm trying to figure out Amazon Web Services, like, I, where do you even start? Well, there's so much training out there. That's where I'm deciding to start. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through some official training curricula to, and I may or may not go after certifications, but I've got that map that's going to help me go from basically not having a lot to hopefully having some pretty specific knowledge mm -hmm. as I go through the program. And I think all certifications are useful for that. It takes you from that, I don't even know what where to start, to, oh, I got a pretty good idea what's going on now. I also but, don't so that, think... That all means... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. Well, I was, was going to say that uh, it, it reminds me a lot of MBAs, right? So the question is, does the MBA get you the job or does the MBA simply open the door, right? I think that the certifications are an easy way to filter out a crop of folks who, you know, maybe aren't qualified. I don't think it opens the same number of doors going forward that it does or that it did 10 years ago, though. Um, and then there's a certain dynamic, right? If Cisco dominates 80% of a particular market, mm -hmm. then 80% of the people who are of the network engineers have to be Cisco certified. Yeah. Um, if 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 competitive pressure drives that number from 80, you know, let's say that the, the the world split open and swallowed them whole and their market share went from 80 to 25. Right. then the value of the Cisco certification is lower. Right. Um, now, it's not going to be 25, but it's they're probably not going to be sitting at 80, 70 points a share anymore. So when that drops down, the value of that particular certification is less, um, which kind of brings me to the, the, the punchline here. I think that the comments that Ethan made about. Um, sort of architecture. I think that the, the, the way that you learn, I think the types of architectural topics that you cover, those are going to make you more or less well suited for a network engineering job. I think using the certification as a, a measure of whether you've gone through structured training, I think that's a, a useful thing. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the, the golden ticket to, you know, to some ridiculous payday going forward. I don't think that the, the certifications have that power. Um, 
you know, from here on out. So maybe, so Mike, may, maybe I missed this, right? I think, I think that's probably part of what shapes my perspective on this is I didn't have the golden payday, right? So I'm a CCIE. I passed a CCIE. I did it, you know, three and a half years ago. Like I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, 20 years ago when having a CCIE was like, you know, it made you, you know, king of the mountain or whatever. I was just one more person who has an expert level cert. I never viewed it that way. I always viewed it as some sort of structure. So maybe, maybe that's what's, you know, skewing my perspective against you guys. Cause I just never had that expectation. And maybe I think that, I think we all agree on that, that the expectation that just passing a cert in and of itself is going to open a door for you like that on its own, it may help. But it's not depending good. It's, on the it, cert. There, there are certain conversations you'll have, and people that'll talk to you based on your certifications. I think to some degree, but I think that's fading a bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, it didn't move the needle for me financially when I got mine, uh, you know, roughly ten years ago. Um, just, it just didn't. You know, my employer was supportive, but it didn't change anything for me when uh, when I finally got through uh, that exam. Yeah, Mike, another thought on your, you know, Cisco dominance currently. Well, right. I mean, if the market fractures, and we're already seeing that in a lot of different verticals, the market fracturing and Cisco isn't quite so dominant, you know, then I mean, what does that mean for certifications? I think that's you know, yet a different question. You still got a lot of learning to do. You still got a lot of things you got to know. But instead of it being Cisco's so dominant, it's the one thing you can count on to jump into and you know, climb the career ladder. Now it's not such a clear-cut thing, which doesn't diminish the value of certs, but min diminishes the value of maybe a particular certification track yeah. and makes you want to think about some other strategies. Well, I don't know how you even tackle automation. So if automation is going to exist in heterogeneous environments, it's more than just networking. You know, yeah. even things like that don't lend themselves very well to like a, a, you know, a cookie-cutter cert. Um, which actually I think opens up some white space for people to, to, to differentiate both their careers and also on the vendor side. Um, you, know, you can imagine being an, an automation architect as an example or a workflow architect. There's value in knowing how to think about that stuff. You know, I think some of, our, the, some of the Twitterati you know, guys like Edelman and, and Oswalt and those guys I think have built a, a pretty strong reputation around thinking about the automation problem in a different way. Um, and so I, th I, think, I think there's a lot of white space. Um, I don't know if the certifications will follow because those companies tend to be uh, newer and kind of emerging. And so they don't have the same money to pump into a certification program. You know, so what happens if, for instance, Appstra takes off? Is there going to be a bunch of Appstra certs? There might be Appstra training. I don't know if the certs will follow, though. Right? <laughs> All right. Well, how, how long, re realistically, how long is it or do you think it will be until so much is abstracted away? Uh, the CLI, that the the nature of being a network engineer changes that much. I mean, I, I just, I'm working on a CCIE right now. I've been working on it for like 18 months. It's killing me. And, uh, and I've had some folks say, you know, there's not that much value anymore. Maybe you should think about doing something else. You know, you're already in a senior level. So, you know, what are you doing? Um, but I'm like, you know, I'm not so sure. Is it going to be in the next three years, five years, seven years? Uh, obviously, you know, none of us have a crystal ball, but I, I still like to hear your thoughts. 34 years. 34 years. Okay. So in 34 <laughs> oh, years, okay. I mean, I'm going to be on a beach, you know, on my beach house. So what, what am I doing? Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, think, do, I think... Do you see my point, though? Are we really, really going to be running intent-based, completely vendor agnostic systems in the next few years where my career today and my ability to pay my mortgage and, uh, and you know, in a, in a more idealistic ivory tower fashion, uh, my uh, pure knowledge of networking, it, you know, it's still important. That's actually a really, really great segue to another topic that I think we wanted to talk oh, about. So, <laughs> Phil, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> um, so we, we talked about this, right? I, I, so <clears throat> our industry gets really hyped about new technologies, like 
really hyped. I mean, I'm sure it happens in other industries as well. But it seems like it seems like there's a gigantic disconnect between the marketing side and the marketing and, and what the expectation. I know, Mike, I know. What's your title again? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the actual real life adoption rates, right? I mm-hmm. think there's just some expectation that that we're going to like have this transformed, fully software-defined, fully orchestrated multi-vendor network like next year. And we have no idea what that means. <laughs> so, 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 so are there any thoughts on that? Because I think that's one of those things that I think a lot of people struggle with because I think that there's this impression that everyone should be there already. No, I think multi-vendor is a fantasy, by and large, for most organizations. Yes, someone's on That's, my side. <laughs> I don't know that I'm taking a side exactly. I'm just trying to reflect what I think the reality of it is. So the reality is, you know, multi-vendor is a pro- it, it solves a problem for certain companies. There's certain companies that want a disaggregated solution. They want white box paired with an operating system of their choice that does these very specific things so that they can program it using, you know, this tooling that they're comfortable with. And so they may end up mixing and matching vendors um, for that reason. Most companies, I don't think, want that. They want, you know, if they could buy everything from Cisco or if they could buy everything from HP, they they do that. And maybe it's been best of breed for a while. From Juniper? But I think... Or Juniper. Yeah, we see Mike talking <laughs> Juniper there, yeah. Um, you know, it's been best of breed for some of these companies, but I think I think you look at hyper-converged. You look at uh, just the, the IT stack as a whole and being possibly single-sourced, and some companies going, yeah, that works for me. Simpler is better. Yeah. I want all one vendor. I want it all to work together, and when it doesn't work, I'm going to call them, and they're going to fix it. That's Ugh, the reason. The whether whether that's the choke. reality of, of, of it, you know, the, right, the whole one throat to choke thing, Which I, I think there saying. are companies that believe <laughs> in that. They want that relationship, and they want to do that big spend with the one, one vendor and have the big leverage and negotiating power each year when they do the refresh cycles. And multi-vendor isn't solving a problem for them. It's maybe making things more complicated. And so, you know, why? Why would they do that if <laughs> the solution they can get from one vendor is, quote, unquote, good enough? And you go back to Cisco at Cisco Live, and you listen to the messaging that was coming down from, uh, from Chuck. And, man, he wasn't talking about interoperability and playing with other vendors and we're going to make nice with the open. He was all about... I got everything you need, baby. You know, back up the money truck, dump it in my lap, and I'm going to give you all your technology. So I, you know, I don't see multi-vendor realistically happening. So you so don't actually need. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now I was going to say, here's my soapbox though um, about vendor lock-in. First of all, um, you know, it's sometimes vendors need to be partners, and they can be. But at some point, when your vendor starts determining your strategy, that becomes a problem. And I think our industry has gotten to the point where they go to the vendor and they say, tell me what to do. What do I need to do? And the vendor says, give me all your money and then you'll do this. <laughs> and, and then it doesn't work. And so leadership goes and you know, tries to choke their throat and, and they laugh all the way to the bank, right? So I think the thing that we have to challenge is what value are we getting from our vendors and are they delivering? And at some point, if there's only one player in the game, there's nobody else to go to and keep them honest. So Yvonne, are you defining the idea of vendor lock-in a little bit more um, in terms of reliance on the vendor for your strategy, uh, uh, you know, technology strategy, more than just that single vendor that you buy most of your gear from? 
So little, you see them yeah. as different things? No, well, I, it's all kind of the, because it all ends up being the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, and some vendors have really intense machinery to work with purchasing and mm. to make life easier for your purchasing department. And so it becomes not so much yeah. about the technology as the machinery of getting technology done. And mm. I think that becomes something that we have to fight against as technologists, not, you know, with our fists or anything. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying go down to... Yvonne, don't, Yvonne don't, advocating <laughs> violence here. Yeah, yeah don't, don't, don't take a baseball bat to purchasing. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm just suggesting that we can get into a routine of letting the vendor drive us all the way to the bank to hand over a big truckload of cash. So this got into a, a fairly heavy topic. And so I think that I think there's multiple facets to this conversation. So we're talking about vendor lock-in as a component. We're talking about multiple vendors. Um, we're talking a bit about orchestration because that's come up in previous conversations. And so like, I, I kind of want to like maybe approach each of those just a little bit differently. Um, we talked about vendor lock-in, like just going to one vendor and buying a bunch of stuff from them. And yes, right now there are companies that do that. I don't think that continues forever. I think that we're, you know, there's, there's some disillusionment that's coming, right? With the company that's been at the top of the, the chain, we're seeing that in the market. People are moving away from them more. It's not like some mass movement, but it is happening, right? And so, and then we have this idea of white box. And so when I say, when I say I don't think a company wants to be multi-vendor, I don't think a company wants to support 12 different vendors in their network. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that they don't want to go to something like a model of disaggregation, right? Where I buy my, my network hardware from somebody and my network software from somebody else. Um, you know, Russ, who's a friend of our show, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> and Ethan's rolling his eyes, right? No, he, but, but no, not but, about Russ. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking about your comment about right. you know the companies that are maybe okay with buying hardware from somebody and software from somebody. If there's an right. economic model that makes that work, then that's going to start driving that. Other than that, I don't think that's that's going to happen. Right. No. I, and, I, and, and if you look at the disaggregated model, who's winning in that? Or one of the winners in that space could be Dell. Why? Right. Support model. HP's yep. getting behind that game, too. They just announced a partnership with Big yep. Switch. And support, one of the big reasons, hey, just got to talk to HP, you know? Right. And, but the compelling argument there, and the thing that I think that hasn't been made yet, is the idea that you buy your, you buy your software on a 10-year cycle and buy your hardware on a two-year cycle. So rather than getting yeah. locked in, rather than getting locked in on some platform that just, that marries me to hardware and software in the same cycle... I get locked in at different ranges, right? I get locked into my hardware vendor for a much shorter period of time. I can jump from vendor to vendor if for whatever reason. But nobody wants to sit there like translating configurations from this device to this device to this device. No one wants to do that. And so I, that's why I say I don't think people are going to multi-vendor. They're, they're going to they're gonna want to run one vendor. But I do think people are looking for some flexibility eventually. I don't know, I don't know how broad that's going to be because Cisco keeps coming out with great solutions. Juniper keeps coming out with great solutions. HP keeps coming out with great solutions where if you buy everything from them, there's this, you know, you get these fancy that, features. Yeah. That, that, that. See, that's yeah. the thing that I think is going to keep people in the single vendor uh, realm right there. Because right. if you buy it all from us, it works. If you mix and match, you know, some of it will work and some of it won't. I don't think we're ever, ever in this industry going to get a network abstraction layer that abstracts away all the things. It's not nope. going to happen. You're well, not going to have that... a bunch of different hardware <laughs> underneath and you've got one orchestrator that orchestrates it all. I just don't believe it because there's not enough heads together on this and everybody that's behind a lot of these open source projects and uh, standards initiatives are from the vendors and they're bumping heads about this thing, trying <laughs> I, to make things happen their way. I couldn't agree with that more because I think multi-vendor orchestration is just a fantasy. Right, I really do. I, th I think the idea now, you know, I have friends who work at Appstra and what they're doing is cool. Mm -hmm. If you fit right within their model, it's good. 
But man, the idea to me, multi-vendor orchestration is lowest common denominator. You're going to get the least amount of features that everyone offers in coordination, right? Like that's what you're going to get because it's going to be so hard to say, okay, we're going to have this little piece over here that's vendor A and then they have this special sauce that does this. Yeah. And this over here is vendor B and they have this special sauce and we're going to make the two talk together. Like, ah, uh, come on. And, like, and, really? and, and that lowest common denominator comes in not just in software, but also in hardware. You got chip vendors saying that. Ah, oh, well, you know, we could use the switch abstraction interface, you know, Psy. But, uh, you know, we kind of don't want to use that because it doesn't really expose all the features of our silicon. So, you know, exactly. we used our own. And, 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 and speaking to the, you know, like the, the manufacturer's defense, right, they need a competitive advantage. What happens if multi-vendor orchestration really ha you know, comes to be? Well, then it's just it's a drive to the bottom, right? Like that's what we're looking for. We're looking for you know, commoditization of all hardware, which is great for the consumer, but no vendor out there is hoping to see yeah. to see everything become commoditized. Like it's just, we, there's just, we don't just simplify our networks, yeah. stop using fancy features and keep things as simple as possible and uh, you know stop turning the nerd knobs, then right, it's all yeah. of a sudden it's not even interesting. It's just like, how cheap can you get me a hundred gig uh, and a whole bunch of hundred gig ports and a chassis? That's what I want. Right, and then and then you're looking at your at your software is where you're really investing mm. into the, the the engineering. But I don't I don't see that happening on a large scale unless something changes in the market. Ne nevertheless, though, that's what's get that's every third blog that I read is about that. Every, every <laughs> you know every third vendor is is preaching that that this is where we're going. And I do like the idea. It sounds really sexy. It's really cool. You know, I love a lot of these. I love the intent based networking uh, concept. Um, which, you know, I, we could probably argue that it's more advanced orchestration right now anyway. Um, but, but yeah, is, is that today? And is it ever going to really, really happen? And you're almost scared to say that, aren't you? I'm scared to say that on Twitter sometimes. I'm scared to, you know, get that explicit in a blog. And when I say scared, I don't mean I'm scared, like frightened, but I'm, I'm a little cautious. Like, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but today... Yvonne's going to show I'm, up with her baseball bat. I'm ruffling bat. feathers. Yeah. Well, you know, I just don't... I, I, I read this stuff and then I'm like... Man, I, you know, I just don't really buy a lot of this stuff. Now, I mean, it, again, not that I don't buy the the, the cool factor, the the um, uh, you know that it, it it could solve a lot of problems. I get that, but we're not there yet, and maybe we never will be. So it's like we're a in couple the trough of, of disillusionment. Go ahead. Oh, oh very yeah. good, very good. <laughs> wow, I was trying yeah. to think of that, Yvonne. We're on the same wavelength. Oh, drop the mic on the Gartner reference. Yeah, uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so I think the the. The, the multi-vendor thing is an economic advantage. It's mostly, so it's not really a technical thing. It's I want some economic like supplier leverage so I can negotiate better deals. Um, to make that true, you actually don't need to introduce a second vendor. You just need the threat of introducing a second vendor. Interesting. Um, and, mm. Yeah, so I, I think what ends up happening is that you're gonna see people will, will pull out some of the nerd knobs over time, um, but only in domains that are relatively um, well enough off that they don't need the nerd knobs or that the nerd knobs have become you know, sort of ubiquitous and everybody has roughly the same functionality. We see that top of rack, you're gonna see it in the spine, we're seeing it with Draft Lapikov and sort of the BGP based whatever. And so people going forward, you'd have to be crazy to go, if you were building from scratch, you didn't have any legacy stuff to worry about, you'd be crazy to build all the complexity in from day one, right? That should be a, a mm -hmm. concession that you make only after careful deliberation. And so I think if you kind of look at the market and, and I guess Phil kind of to your point, is it ever gonna happen? I think it's absolutely gonna happen that this is where things go. I just think it's gonna be in companies that are starting you know, in 2017 and moving forward. They don't have 30 years of crap they have to take care okay. of. Okay, that's and fair. So, so if you're, 
Um, and so the question is going to be then what percentage of overall IT spend is you know relegated to companies that are you know say newer than 2010. Right. You're talking you're talking about adoption through attrition. That's a really slow process. Hmm. I, and this is why I think it's going to take forever. I think that we always I think we in general what markets do is we we tend to over um, we, we overestimate you know, kind of how, or I guess underestimate how hard or how easy it is to move to something. So it always takes like three times longer than we think. And then once we're through that process, we underestimate how much of the market's going to move there because we think that everything's going to hold on to the legacy stuff. That's just not the case, right? Once you go, you go. It's just going to take us three times longer to get there than we think. Um, and I actually think that most of the blogging that, you, you know, so every third blog, I think is sort of part of the problem. Because what we're doing is we flood the market out there with a bunch of stuff. It's all new. And then we force the companies to go evaluate it. And you're like, hey, go take a look I at my shiny theory, thing. I have a different theory, though, about why the blog situation. Those are the ones that gets a lot, get a lot of views. So, of course, you're going to write about that. Sorry, yeah, you so want my yeah, trough so of disillusionment. I'm you still want me to write about intent-based networking? You want me to write about you know some new feature the IETF came up with for OSPF? And, and from, from time to time, I do write about that kind of stuff because I actually am interested in some of those things. But it, you know what I'm trying to say, right, guys? Well, ask, ask the marketing guys how much of, that, how much of those, those yeah. types of blogs translate into to revenue dollars. Yeah. At some point, we're going to have to rationalize that the last seven years, starting in 2010, 2011, mm. when the SDN train started rolling, right? Mm. We, we all started building into the hype. And um, I remember sitting there in 2011 laughing at Cisco because they weren't doing it. And I'm like, what are they doing? Like, they're, they're, they don't have an SDN story. These guys are crazy. Yeah, they were crazy smart. They let us all. But they let us all keep talking about it. And the more distant the, few, the, the, the promise gets from the reality, it's like uh, at some point you don't, even know, you don't know what to do. And then you end up in Yvonne's point of view, which is, so if you don't know what to do, then what do you do? You go, you're, you're sort of beholden to your vendor. Like, hey, I, I, I loved all that stuff. I, it's great. It's going to transform my IT. Where's the Cisco reps, you know, card again? I got to order some more switches. Um, and that's what we've created. And, and Cisco was brilliant to let us all punch each other out while they just sat there and cashed checks for pretty much uncontested for like three or four years. <laughs> that That is a perspective I have not heard before. Mm -hmm. that's, that's actually, it, and it's so true, right? Because all of us are now so disillusioned with the whole concept of SDN. Like we all just kind of laugh. We roll our eyes. It's like, sure, now, now it actually means something a little bit. And whatever <laughs> you know like we're, yeah. we're still buying switches we're still buying routers that's, we're still a, doing that's this, actually the very still doing end the of the same hype stuff. cycle yeah right we're still doing so all the same switch stuff we've port mode access yeah right switch and, port right. access vlan mm. yeah. <laughs> i mean that's that's you know that's reality mm -hmm. so I mean, lag for the win what's that M lag for the win. M, M lag right? for I mean, the win. Oh yeah, that's used everywhere. Uh, so, <laughs> so, what? so yes. Yeah, so let's 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 talk about that a little bit. So we we you know we've there's been a lot of hype around SDN and the new one. Right, the new one is cloud. Right, cloud fixes everything. Cloud is going to make everything better. What do you guys think? <laughs> yes. Get <laughs> yeah, big stupid. <laughs> so 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 I'll tie this to. Um, uh, the the thought of no ops, which I think is you know, definitely passed on the on the hype cycle, but you know the whole idea was like everything's in cloud. We don't need operators anymore. We don't need engineers. Just put it all in the cloud and stand it up, and it'll be good. But you still got to design uh, an application architecture that is using cloud and understand what's really going on in that cloud, so that your application latency and performance and resiliency and disaster recovery 
can all happen mm -hmm. and that you understand your cost profiles so that you're not, you, you, if you just try to pick up your data center and move it to cloud, you did, that's not what that's for. That's not, it's not how the whole thing is supposed to work. Oh, infrastructure as a service means I can shut down physical servers and run them in someone else's cloud and it'll be cheaper. No, it will not. You need to <laughs> think real carefully about all of that. Um, I, I've always wondered about this, right? Especially the economic argument. I never could understand it because I understand cloud, right? Has economy of scales, but the reality is, is they still have to pay engineers. They still have to pay for the same stuff you'd have to pay for to run it yourself. They still are paying all the, the physical infrastructure stuff. Like these, these data centers aren't cheap. And so when it gets done, and then they have to make a profit on it where you don't. So and whatever, whatever like economy of scale that they have, like they're gonna, it's gonna be lost in the fact that they have to make a profit on the infrastructure where you're, you're making profit on whatever your business does. Oh yeah, that they're infrastructure charging massively it. for you right. to use that infrastructure. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's the point. So I mean, there's, well, there are absolutely these places where it makes sense, right? It makes sense to pay and have that flexibility and there's value in, in a lot of these you know, cloud type deployments. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's, there's nothing there. In fact, there's a lot, but that, you know, it's just the idea that we can just pick up our data center and run it in the cloud and it's going to be so much cheaper and so much easier and so much more predictable and, and I don't know. So, so there's <laughs> like the, the cost argument. Um, if, the, if the delta in cost between, say, the, the, a medium-sized company and like Amazon is very high, then you'll get an economy of scale argument. Um, if the delta in cost is relatively narrow in absolute terms, then the economy of scale argument goes away. And so if you take a, a space that's rapidly commoditizing, like, say, top of rack, you're not going to get a huge advantage there because there's not that much more meat to cut into. Mm -hmm. If you were to look at the, if, if you took, you know, giant core switches that are going to sell at, you know, much higher margins because they're, they're not as commoditized, then you'll get an economy of scale argument out of cloud. Um, now, what people are using them for is for, you know, compute and then the networking component tends to be, you know, essentially basic connectivity between um, application instances. In that case, you're not going to get a huge economy of scale. It's just it's not going to happen. The math doesn't it doesn't work out. Um, and so anyone who's put together a business case that says I'm going to go to cloud because I'm going to get this huge TCO savings, I think I think they're smoking a little bit of something. Um, and in California, that's legal these days. Um, but I think I think I think the argument to be made though, I think there's a real question that says, especially around the certification issue we talked about at the beginning, is you know how do you want to staff it? You know do you want your your smart, precious resources be working on a thing that's largely a solved problem, or do you want them to be working on something that's core to your business? And so I think you're going to see an agility argument and kind of a, an opportunity cost argument. Um, and then I, I and kind of to, to, to wrap this whole thing up in a, in a little depressing bubble, um, the, the move to cloud, <laughs> the move to cloud, I mean, I think there's technical reasons to move to cloud, but I don't think that the, the, the mass, you know, kind of mainstream cloud adoption is going to be driven by a bunch of technical decisions. I mean, it will for some companies, but I think you're going to see, you know, similar to manufacturing decisions, or when we decided we were going to offshore every all of our engineering talent to, to India or to Belarus or to the Philippines or wherever the, the cheapest locale was, I think you're going to see this led by the, the big systems integrators, the big uh, consultants. It's going to be Accenture. It's going to be Deloitte. It's going to be a lot of the, you know, uh, you know, uh, Northrop Grumman and GD and, and guys selling out you know, a, a vision that says go transform your business. And they're going to roll in and they're going to sell it to the CFO. And the CFO is going to make a decision and, and they're going to make a, at that point, they're going to make a financial decision. It's going to be left yeah, but they to don't the engineering have to sell them. Um, they don't have to sell them public cloud. I mean, we, there could also be private cloud, which makes a lot of sense too. Uh, I so I agree they don't have to sell them public cloud. They're gonna what they're gonna do. So if you're uh, if you're an Accenture as an example, right? What you do is you build a practice around a common set of recommendations and you stamp it out over and over again. 
And so everyone looks at Accenture, they're a route to market. So we vendors, we look at Accenture as a way to sell more stuff. And so which cloud company, private or public or what or all the vendors, who's gonna line up behind that? And if Amazon gets behind that and says, Accenture, go stamp out your, your cloud migration movement, then Amazon's gonna give them a ton, ton of help. And whoever gives them the help, that's who's gonna win. I think we're gonna see, I, I, I think the people who, who think that cloud, like the, the folks who think it's gonna be the way, it, the way it is now and think that cloud's never coming, I think, I think it's delusional. I think cloud's coming. I just don't think it's gonna be an all or nothing proposition. And to my earlier point, I think it's gonna take way longer to get there than people anticipate. But when we get there, it's gonna wipe a bunch of stuff out. And I think if, if you're not preparing for that, I think if your career has a 10 year horizon on it, maybe who cares? If your career has a 30 year horizon on it, I think you need to pay paying attention because you're going you're gonna to work your way into a corner and it's going to be you and the mainframe guy working on stuff you know, over at whatever company. <laughs> the things no. that we haven't been able to get rid of yet. Oh, yeah, Bob works on that. Uh, yeah, that's why he, we keep him around. But as soon as we shut that thing, I don't think Bob's going to have anything to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you go to state government. That's, uh, that's, that's your refuge at that point, maybe. You said something interesting there as well, and that is that uh, that not all of it's going right. Like it's 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 this again. Yet another thing is not an all or nothing proposition. Cloud isn't going to solve all problems. Now I know Yvonne has had some exceptionally fun experiences with with cloud connectivity and some of the challenges in and around that. Um, and I know one of the things that just seems to like disappear is you know <laughs> all of a sudden latency doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, <laughs> like like all of a sudden the, the physics of networking somehow changes because it's in cloud. We have just, solved the speed of light problem. Just right. So you know. you just, is it triple now? Quadruple the speed of light? I mean, yeah, what is that? Right. I forget what it is. Um, is it instant? We're in, into that well, now? Quarks and, and, and quantum, so yeah, quantum, quantum connectivity. I agree 100% with what Mike said. Like it's coming and we can debate whether or not that's the best move or the best technical solution. But I think to some degree, the business, and, and I've seen this at several enterprises, not just the ones I've worked for, but talking to other people who are in the enterprise, and the business is frustrated with IT. They're frustrated with how slow it is to move. They're frustrated that every time they want to add another application, it costs them a million dollars. They are ready for something different just, just because they're sick of it. And so we are going to do this cloud thing. Um, and we're we're going to see how it works, and so we can talk about whether it's it's a good idea. And that and there are problems we need to solve around connectivity, but I I do think that we have to understand cloud enough to be able to operate in that world, and to to help explain some of those physical limitations, right? Yeah, I know that you can transfer hundreds and hundreds of terabytes within our data center with very low latency in a relatively short amount of time, and you don't understand why it takes that long to transfer that much data to the cloud. But here, let me do a little math for you. Let me explain <laughs> a little bit about how TCP works, and that because you have this windowing process and this SYN-ACK process, it's going to take longer to get your data there because of the way the protocols function. And I think as network engineers, we can add value that way. But I think if we step back and go, yeah, the cloud's a phase. Yeah, it may be a phase, but it's probably like a 20 year phase before that pendulum swings back um, to where we are today. I don't think it I, swings back actually. Maybe, really? maybe partially, but. I think you'll get a redefinition of what cloud is. I think things like mobile edge or multi-axis edge computing will change it from like a large centralized cloud to a distributed set of resources at the access and at the prem. And 
And I think that, and it's still in my mind, that's those are still fungible resources. They can sort of move. They're still managed as a cloud. It's just a different definition. So I think where people have mostly wrapped their head around giant data centers, I think that that notion is probably not going to going to be. Uh, it, it may be the dominant way. I don't think it'll be the only way. Um, the, certainly, the telcos are going to use their central offices and sort of they're owning the access space to to roll out mech. Um, and then you're going to see, um, especially like in Europe um, and also probably in Asia, you'll see different models. Um, Europe, especially around data sovereignty between sort of where does the data reside. Um, interesting implications in IoT as an example. So all of those sensors are sending data somewhere. Where does that data, where does that data live? And so the definition of cloud is going to vary. You're likely to get a bunch of smaller clouds or smaller resources distributed along like you know regional and, and national yeah, boundaries. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's you'll you'll have localized requirements. There'll be compliance reasons. There'll be yeah. the things you were just citing, Mike. There's going to be drivers that mean you have to keep your data locally, and meaning you to to compute efficiently on that data, you're going to have to have compute resources local as well. And so, right, you're never going to completely get rid of all of your um, local compute infrastructure, but the by and large, if you can have it in public cloud, you're going to. Uh, you know, over time, I think that's just going to be the standard way to do things. And then what our local infrastructure that remains looks like will be awfully similar to that public cloud, to the point of I'm almost wondering if we're going to see things like Amazon APIs become a standard, maybe, that takes over. Probably not, but maybe there's some people talking about things like, well, S3 for object storage, that's kind of a standard. I mean, it isn't a standard, but it kind of is because almost everybody conforms to that. So maybe we start seeing some de facto ways of doing compute locally that mirrors what we see in public cloud. And that's, that's where that time horizon comes in. Well, this is why I like I like what Microsoft's done. I think Azure Stack actually is is actually pretty aligned, you know, putting instances of that stuff on a on a um, on a microserver that sits on yeah. a prem box. I mean, that's a pretty that's actually a pretty hot idea. Um, and so I think I think ideas like that are actually going to emerge. Now, you, to the earlier comment, I think we opened up with a comment about orchestration. You thought multi-vendor was hard hard now. I mean, so now start looking at multi-cloud. Um, and then this gets me back to my point about, when it was, so before we even get one thing adopted, we've already increased the degree of difficulty by like 10x or 100x because... But, but this is not the trend, right? Like, I mean, like, I... So being a, being an integrator, right? I see this all the time with my customers. Like they, they like a new idea, they want to implement it, they want to do it. By the time that they get halfway done with it, that idea is old news, right? Like we're we're on to the next thing just because of this hype cycle. I mean, it just takes so and serverless. long. So, so you just get your head wrapped. Imagine a CIO. He's like, oh, okay, where's our container strategy? So their team is rolling it out this week. He's probably sitting in like a three hour review meeting, and as he's leaving, the guy's like, man, we got to go serverless. <laughs> I mean, it, <laughs> how many Ethernet fabric products have come and gone in the last, say, six years? <laughs> Tons 14, of them. Plenty. Yeah, it's just, I don't know about four, 34. <laughs> 34. <laughs> that was the answer before, right? Number uh, of years. Uh, but yeah, things come and go, and, and we're seeing so much of that fracturing in the market where it used to be. Everybody buys Cisco. This is the way you build a Cisco network. How? We all learned it this way in, the, in our certification programs. That world is gone. That just isn't there anymore. Everybody buys what they buy for whatever their reasons are. And then the vendor's stuck in a lot of capes with a lot of times with, this really didn't get the momentum we were hoping for, but we do have these 50 customers that bought the stupid thing. I guess we got to support it. You know, maybe we can move them into something else over time by saying we're not going to add any more features to it. Maybe I don't work. think that world is gone. I really don't. We're, I think it is in the trickle down phase big time. You know, I, I, I try to, um, 
uh, offer suggestions on how to do some things differently at work from time to time. And sometimes they're met with approval, sometimes disapproval. But almost everyone, maybe everyone there is younger than me or significantly younger and has an incredible comfort zone wrapped around their little CLI. And they stroke it and pet it and whisper sweet nothings to the CLI. It's comfortable and safe. And they're, and they're younger than me sometimes by a decade or more. So I agree huh. with you, Ethan, but I think we're still in trickle down phase. It's not gone. I thought you were going to go going. the other way. I thought you, you were going to say the younger people were <laughs> no, like, not, hey, not old guy, why not you so, know, get, get, behind, I mean, get on the Python train, buddy, or something like that. It depends on which circles you're talking about, right? You know, so, yeah, if you're talking to certain people in certain circles, I get that. But, uh, you know, by and large, people are, are they're graduating from college with their four year degree, getting a help desk job. Oh, I'm going to go get a CCNA or oh, I'm going to, you know, I learned some Python in college and they're applying some things. So, so yeah, I, maybe there's more openness, but I, you know, in my experience, I'm seeing folks that are even younger than me that are still, um, uh, stuck in that from, from the very beginning. So, so I still agree with you though. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I, I do feel that we're still in the trickle down phase where that's coming down the pike and it's slowly happening. I don't, I don't believe that that entire world is just gone poof and we're in this brave new world of networking yet. So we're all on the hype cycles. We all listen to the news too much. We all listen to new vendor, new product briefings. We all watch tech field day videos. We're yes. all just in the middle of the maelstrom, you know, right in the eye of yeah. the storm, if you will, everything's swirling uh, around absolutely. us. Absolutely. And when I get to work, I'm, I'm looking at things like, what, what, what are you talking about? And then I realize, no, this is about standard operating procedure here. I mean, this is this is the norm. I'm the one that's weird at this point. So <laughs> yeah, and then, Mike, I think, you know, you uh, just put you on the hot seat for a second as a, as a vendor. I think vendors see things from a standpoint of some very large customer accounts driving their decisions and products that don't trickle down to the mid market, which is, I think, what where a, you know, a lot of us that have been building networks came from. Uh, or are in right now, you know, not the multi, uh, you know, not the nine, eight or nine figure accounts, but, you know, the seven figure and down accounts that take a longer time to adopt new tech. Yeah, Cisco's cornered the market on, on like routes to market. So the, the, if, if the channel or the VARs fundamentally change, I think it opens that up. Hmm. Um, now, I actually think there's dynamics that are going to drive that, by the way. So if we believe that there's increased competition will drive down pricing, which will have an impact on margins, then the, the standard response is to claw back margin. You squeeze two people. You'll squeeze your supply chain, which they've already done. You negotiate better deals for you know, components, whatever. Next thing you do is you squeeze the channel. And so you, you'll force consolidation in the channel because that's you'll have the bigger VARs will take out the smaller VARs and they'll do yeah. so at, at fewer points. When that happens, that's gonna force the VARs to open up their catalog because it's an existential game for them. Either they exist or they don't. If they don't open up the catalog, they're dead over time. Mm. Um, so I think I think that we're gonna see um, existential change. I just don't think it's gonna be in the mid-market the mid, mid -market enterprise. I think it's gonna be in the mm -hmm. channel first and that's gonna drive a, a change in what they consume. And then fundamentally, I think this changes um, you know, the, the notion of what a product is. Um, I think the product is not gonna be the switch or the router or the server. The product is the migration. It's how do I get from old to new and what, for whatever definition of old and new are. And so I think that the, the services and stuff actually play a big role. And that means that companies that we sort of talk about as if they're already dead, HP and Dell, I, it, maybe they don't die, right? Maybe that the, the services that they provide the support, I mean, maybe that's the difference in terms of getting mm. people from, from legacy it, it, to, to new. In my years of consulting with Avar, I mean, that my customers basically did what we recommended. We came in the door, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get, okay, well, we got the you know this Microsoft solution, this Novell solution, the Cisco solution, whatever it was, 
they were like, okay, well, you're going to support it. So if that's what you recommend, you know, can we afford it? You know, work out the budget, get the get the bill uh, bill of sale all typed up correctly, and like, all right, sign off and do it. We come in and install it, and then we'd support it. So right. If I'm walking in the door, they could have cared less if it was you know HP or, or who it was necessarily, as long as it was going to work and they could afford it. You know, those are the two things. So yeah, you know, VAR's driving change makes a lot of sense. Well, so I, I think you're going to see a split in the market. Um, I think you'll see that you know new companies will be born in the cloud and they'll stay in the cloud and they'll they'll be they'll do DevOps things and DevOps ways and everything will be SDNified and NFEitized and whatever else, right? I think you're going to see mid-market folks who, who don't have the luxury of, of walking away from you know, 15, 20, 30 years of baggage. And I think that, the, that when the market splits, you're going to force vendors to decide where they're going to go. And I actually think that this could make things interesting. Um, I think it, it means that not, I don't think we're, this is why I don't think we're going to get a one-size-fits-all for you know, the quote-unquote enterprise networking market. I don't think there's going to be an enterprise networking market. I think there's going to be two or three or four different markets that have different requirements and some of them will go hyper converged and that's because that's what they want some of them will go sort of you know build their own cloud because that's what they want mm-hmm. right and some of them are going to go public cloud and some of them are going to try to thread the needle in between you know i just caution the folks who think they're going to do you know the, the the best of all of those you know i think if you if you fail to make a decision that's the kind of that's the kind of you know place where you get squashed you know i, I kind of describe this as a strategic straddle you know, so uh, you can imagine, you know, straddling That's two a per- positions. Perfect term. I know, right? So you, you straddle two positions. That doesn't necessarily feel that great if, if if neither one of those pans out. That's hilarious. Well, on that, I think we are going to have to uh, going to have to close out the show there. On that happy news, I have to go update my resume. Um, <laughs> apparently, my job is short lived and not around for much longer. If if Mike's in the future, thirty four years. Oh, I've got plenty of time then. <laughs> Uh, but, but before we go, I want to give, uh, give my co-host here an opportunity to, uh, to share where you can find them. Yvonne, uh, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on the blog at esharp.net and on Twitter at Sharp Network. All right. And Phil? You can find me on Twitter at, at network underscore Phil, and the blog is networkphil.com. All right. I'm at BC Jordo on Twitter, jordanmartin.net. You can find me there. Uh, if you want to find more uh, excellent conversations like this, you can go to uh, thenetworkcollective.com. That's our website. Uh, we are on YouTube. We are on iTunes. Like, subscribe, do all those fun things. We'd like to we'd like to have you uh, participate. Uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>